You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Chris Cook, Alan Buck here, Game Day IQ at thegruelingtruth.com, your Thursday evening tradition. Alan Buck, say hello to everybody tonight. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the show. We are blessed to have a newlywed on the line, yes. and it is not yeah. it is not I. It's no. Mr. Cook. Um, no. We married on Halloween in, Day. In the middle of a pandemic, uh, on Halloween Day, we... Mm-hmm. Had the nuptials mm-hmm. and uh, once again a married lovely, man. So off the market a lovely, for all uh, the dinner. Yeah, lovely dinner that evening that I was able to attend. It was a terrific, uh, terrific send off for the newlywed couple. But uh, yeah, well, we, but anyway, a couple for, weeks for tonight, we'll be heading down to Florida. <laughs> uh, yeah, terrific. Well, that'll be good. Yeah. Um, so for, on this week's show, I'll tell you what you're going to hear about the fastest hat trick in NHL history. Some World Series pitching records with which I'm betting you're unfamiliar. The history behind one of college football's most iconic stadiums. Some football trivia. A surprise addition to the bench. And we'll touch on soccer, cheerleading, and who knows what else Chris and I are going to get going here. You never know. That's right. Along the way, though, you can bet we're going to raise your game day IQ. So you'll definitely want to join us for this edition. And um, with that, you want... (laughs) The way I am, you want me to uh, you want me to go to the bench so we can I get my hackles up and I can spend the rest of the show coming back down to earth. Might as well. You'll uh, <clears throat> you'll like this. As a matter of fact, I alluded to it Saturday morning when uh, you were not on the show. You had other duties, but uh, uh, Jevin Redmond asked me something, and uh, oh, I, I I went off. <laughs> but here goes. As most of our listeners know, I'm a, I'm a proud alum of Indiana University, and I'm an ardent fan of its various sports programs. Now, this week, I'm putting the football program squarely on the bench. And first of all, I must say that I'm very pleased with the progress and the direction that Tom Allen has shown with the program. But in the same breath, I have to point out some obvious missteps. So sit down, Coach. You're gonna you're going on the bench this week. <laughs> For for three years, IU was fortunate to, fortunate enough to have a quarterback by the name of Peyton Ramsey. Uh, Ramsey was not an imposing physical specimen. He was more of a cerebral quarterback in the Bob Greasy mold and definitely not just a game manager. He knew his skills, and he played to his strengths while not exposing his weaknesses. He was a proven winner. 
Well, after last season, um, with one season of eligibility remaining for the graduate student, Coach Allen basically ran Ramsey out of the program. Uh, Peyton Ramsey is now at Northwestern. But Coach Allen chose to put all of the quarterback duties on the broad shoulders of Michael Penix, Jr. Now, Penix is one of those imposing physical specimens. He's Six foot three, two hundred eighteen pounds, but he looks much bigger. One reason for the switch to Penix Jr. from Peyton Ramsey is that size. Ramsey is listed at six foot two, two hundred twenty pounds. So uh, the only thing you're gaining size-wise is one inch. So you know that's that's in order to throw the ball better over the, over taller linemen, right? Well, one of the first things you'll notice about Penix Jr. is that he does not throw the football in the classic Dan Marino style you know, straight over the top. Yeah. That's, that is the standard to which all quarterbacks should strive. Penix Jr. throws from, from his ear or below. How's that an advantage over the diminutive Ramsey? And diminutive, if you guys were paying attention, I used air quotes. You have to watch real closely when you're, when you're listening to this, so when I use air quotes there. But at one point in the, in the IU-Penn State game, the announcers praised Penix Jr. for his throwing sidearm to complete a pass. Well, now, it's good to be able to throw that pass a la Kenny Stabler because emergency situations do arise. However, that is his normal motion. If you want somebody to put dents in the pole barn, Penix Jr. is your man. The guy has got a gun. He, he, how, how does he get to his third year in a Division I school without knowing how to throw a football? The IU quarterbacks coach needs to take a seat next to head coach on my bench here. I mean, seriously, his fundamentals are so poor, but that's not his fault. Obviously, his coaches have let him down because clearly his coaching has lacked effectiveness. And, and that, would, that would be, I'm sure, before the college coaches got a hold of him. But, but they should be able to correct those problems. And another problem is he has no ability to hit a receiver in the right spot with the right touch on the ball. When he's throwing anything downfield, again, supposedly a big advantage is to be able to stretch the field, something Ramsey could not do. Penix Jr., he's, he's like the pool player who just plays poke and hope pool. He doesn't, he doesn't have any idea how to hit the shot perfectly. He just pokes, you know, hits the ball and lets him fly around the table and hopes something goes in. Yeah. Penix Jr. doesn't even attempt to hit a receiver on his route and in stride. He rears back and launches a rainbow hoping the receiver will go find it. Well, now, I get the point of putting a little air under a long pass to let your receiver run under it. This is an entirely different procedure. The, he, I'm just I'm saying he's not even directing the ball to the receiver in route. He's just launching it. And on short routes, his timing on when to throw the pass and how hard to deliver it are awful. Um, Penix Jr. is a project at best. Ramsey was a proven winner. I know you're saying I used 2-0, and having beaten Penn State, ranked either 8 or 9 at the time, the first time an IU team has defeated a, 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 a top-10 team in the football in 40-plus years or something like that. Uh, so what am I upset about? Well, if Ramsey played that game, we don't go overtime because we would have had a couple more scores early in the game uh, and we would not have had a problem with Penn State. I know that sounds heresy to say, but we wouldn't have. The way that game played out, Penix Jr. won the game with his athleticism and his legs down the stretch, not with his arm. 
But like I said, we would not have needed those physical heroics had we had the, the, the proven game winner in. At this late stage of Penix Jr.'s career, I don't see much hope for proper form, touch, and accuracy um, You know, in his future, I think. Again, I can't blame the young man too much because it's the coach's job to teach the player the lessons that he hasn't learned, which is what's gotten me so miffed. And then to get rid of a proven winner to take a diamond in the rough, well, it boggles the mind. In short, IU won the Penn State game not – because of stellar play from the quarterback, they won it with an opportunistic defense, and they won despite uh, the play of the quarterback for the first three and a half quarters. IU's got a very good team this year, and it'll be a shame if the quarterback play does not rise to the level of play of the rest of the team. And that falls squarely on the shoulders of the coaches. I, wow. I am very perturbed, but but I kind of I kind of kept both feet on the floor, didn't I? Yeah, but you made but, some solid points there, and I would like to see Ramsey's stats at Northwestern. Um, I know he's doing quite well up there for him. I looked at him his his stats for his four years of playing the first three at IU. He was well into the sixties completion wise, and they went up almost every year. This year, uh, in two games at Northwestern, I think it was 34 for 48. It was over 70%. So he's done nothing but improve the whole time. And and again, um, you know, he's not he's not gonna he's not throwing long bombs. But I'd rather have the uh, Air Coriel or the uh, Bill Walsh offense, whatever, however you want to refer it. That short passing game where uh, you know short passes are high percentage, long passes are low percentage. When you got a quarterback that can execute short passing game like Peyton Ramsey, those you know five to ten yard passes are as good as a run, almost, almost as far as you know turnovers and and not turnovers but incompletions and things you know wasted plays. There, it's a very high uh, positive net out of those plays. But anyway, but it's like you know to to transfer out to a team in your in your conference so you know that's kind of in in the pro game when you're dealing somebody you never want to deal them to somebody that's in your division that you have to face twice a year yeah i'm not sure what the rule is on the uh, on this transfer portal that they call it because ramsey is a is a graduate student and you know with the one year of eligibility i think with graduate students i don't think your college your current school can dictate that you can't transfer within the conference. I, I, am I wrong in saying that? I, like, no, like, I, I don't think know. there's any restrictions, but, yeah, you know, yeah. I don't think Northwestern's on IU's schedule this year. Oh, they're not? Well, that's I a shame. I would have loved to have seen it. But um, but anyway, that's I just, um, you know, I just hope that we don't have an anchor there at that position. And, and see, in the past there were times when Ramsey was playing – and we'd get down in the red zone, and they would put Michael Penix Jr. in because he can, he could take off and run. He was, he was a, definitely a risk to, to take it to the end zone at any point in time. But uh, so you know, I wouldn't, I don't object to that kind of a thing if they've got a good enough playbook uh, to mix it up and still get him into the end zone. But um, yeah, I was, uh, I, was I, I just okay, good. Good. So they play Michigan this week, then Michigan State, then Ohio State, 
Maryland, yeah, Wisconsin, and Purdue. <laughs> the uh, schedule doesn't look like it's getting any easier, does it? Yeah, but the funny thing is, Indiana comes to the game this week ranked 13th, and Michigan's only 23rd. Yeah, where is that game? To you. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah, I don't think we're ready to go up and face 102,000 fans. Well, there's not 102,000. The People's Republic of Michigan has the, the thing shut down, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's right. That's right. I guess if we were going to go to Michigan, this would be the if year. If there was a year to go to Michigan, this would be the year. <laughs> Certainly it. Yes, it is. But Thank the same about that. Ohio State. You know, Indiana has to go play number three Ohio State on the 21st of November. And, you know, in going the to the sh- into the shoe uh, in a COVID shoe, that would be the year to go. And, you know, you to, to be, you know, if IU beats both Michigan and Michigan State, they're heading into Ohio State undefeated. You know, mm-hmm. technically, Indiana could be a top ten team by then, and have True. like a number nine, you know, maybe a number nine versus number two or three yeah. um, matchup against Ohio State. I guarantee you, in a COVID world, even nobody nobody thought of that matchup. Yeah, you're exactly right. They, that's 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 good point. And uh, so, folks, if you're uncertain about the value of the fan experience, uh, you'll see a lot of changes this year because, in, in, like you said, there's just not going to be that huge advantage in the big house or in the shoe or, you know, any one number of other schools. And But if you, on, you know, you hear players say, well, I've got to get up because the fans make it special. No, if you, if you can't get up on your own playing without fans, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're in it for the wrong reasons. You don't have true, to have fans true. to get up to play a game. That's true, but it, it does it does help just a little bit, and and actually, what it does more than that, in the stands. But what it does more than that is it intimidates your opponent. So um, that that can be you know that can be a little daunting. But while we're on football stadiums and that, let's talk about uh, this is story time with Uncle Buck, and I think oh. people are going to appreciate this. This is some history. Um, many college football stadiums have traditions, nicknames, and things that make them unique and can give their teams a psychological advantage during games. This was not set up, folks. Chris and I just happened to be going down that road, and here's the next story I was looking at doing. Um, The University of Michigan's big house is intimidating because of its sheer size. Boise State has its unique blue turf. And the University of Tennessee has its orange and white checkerboard end zones. But do you know the history behind those checkerboards? I just learned it recently, and it's fascinating. These iconic end zones get their origin from their coach, Robert Nyland, or or Nyland, N-E-Y-L-A-N-D. And I I meant to look up the pronunciation because I don't want to get it wrong. Because it's it's Nyland Nyland Stadium. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, God, I'm embarrassed. Yeah, N-E-Y-L-A-N-D. It could be either Nyland or Nyland, but thank you for correcting me there. But he had three coaching stints at UT from 1926 through 1952, the reason his coaching career was interrupted twice was for military service. He was a brigadier general in the United States Army. Neyland holds the record for most wins in Tennessee Volunteers history by a coach with 173 wins in, and 43 losses. He has six undefeated seasons, nine undefeated regular seasons, seven conference championships, and four national championships okay we we said he's got 173 wins 
112 of those wins were shutouts. Wow. Is that amazing? At UT, he reeled off undefeated streaks of 33, 28, 23, 19, and 14. Can you imagine having strings like that throughout? I mean, that's just incredible. Well, Neyland Stadium at UT is not only named for the coach, but it was designed by him. His plans formed the basis for all expansions that brought the stadium to its modern size with a seating capacity of over 100,000. Uh, Neyland was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame as a coach in 1956. Now, about those checkerboards. When Shield Watkins Field was built in 1921, it seated only 3,200 people. That same year, Ayers Hall was built nearby, and with the diminutive size of the stadium, the central tower of Ayers Hall was clearly visible from the field. Near the top of that building was a trim, a border trim around beneath some windows that had a checkerboard pattern. Well, Coach Nealon connected the fire and passion of football with the fine artistry of that tall campus building, and a tradition was born. When the volunteers were on offense and facing airs, Neyland would say things like, uh, uh, don't stop until time runs out or until you reach the checkerboard. And once you get there, get there again. That was a quote of his. He would also say, charge the checkerboard. It was a motivational tactic from Coach uh, Neyland. Um, And, you know, as I said, he was an Army general. So you can well imagine the... uh, uh, fire and brimstone he could he could throw out there well when Doug Dickey became the Vols coach in 1964 that checkerboard design at Ayers became the design in Neyland's end zones as the two structures were linked when Dickey introduced the checkers so players could actually run to the checkerboard for real and not just as a reference to Ayers Hall off in the distance Dickey picked the school colors of orange and white as the checkerboard end zone design And uh, in 1968, the natural grass was replaced by artificial turf, and the checkerboards went away. It was over two decades later when, in 1989, the checkerboards were placed back in the end zones on the artificial turf, turf, and it was a very clean look without the dirt and the grass to contend with. In 1994, Neyland Stadium went back to natural grass, but the checkerboards followed. In 2014, College Football Fan Index ranked the 10 best college football fields. Neyland Stadium ranked third, behind only Smurf Turf at Boise State and the Rose Bowl. There's a great overhead picture of the stadium for the October 1, 2014 game against Florida. The, the entire stadium looks like a checkerboard with fans in every other section wearing white and the adjacent sections wearing orange you know, and diagonally, you know, orange and white and everything. It's pretty impressive. If, if, you, if you want to, you know, just Google the October 1st, 2014, Neyland Stadium uh, picture, overhead picture, something like that will get it. But uh, sadly, Coach Neyland passed away in 1962, so he never saw the checkerboards come to life in the end zones at Neyland Stadium. But I just thought that was pretty cool the way uh, he took that, that just that far off, vision in the upper reaches of that building um, took that checkerboard and, and used that as inspiration for his players to try try to get to it and then uh, 
Doug Dickey putting them in the on the ground in the end zone. That was just that's cool. And I'm not a, hey folks, I'm not a Tennessee fan. I just thought that was a great story. And you know what the capacity is there? Yeah, hundred and two thousand something. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and and to think that uh, Coach Nealon put those plans in place for all the expansions because it, it didn't happen overnight. It was little expansions, you know, throughout the decades. But uh, anyway, that that I thought was pretty cool. Um, it's hey, you've you know, you've in the seen, United States, huh? In seventh. It's oh. the fifth largest stadium in the United States and the seventh largest in the entire world. Hmm. It's only the second largest in the Southeastern Conference. I assume the only one bigger in the Southeastern Conference is at Alabama. Oh, I misunderstood you. I thought you said it was the largest in the United States. No, fifth largest. Okay. Oh, fifth largest, okay, okay. Huh. Um, you know, we, we've we've seen the uh, the uh, Reggie Miller put in how many points in the last fifteen seconds against the New York Knicks, whatever. I mean, it's yeah. just incredibly fast scoring. Well, here's something: the fastest hat trick in NHL history, and this is this is incredible. Bill Wee Willie Moschenko on March twenty third, nineteen fifty two. In a game between the Chicago Blackhawks and the New York Rangers, Moschenko scored the fastest hat trick in NHL history. Trailing by four goals in the final period, Chicago won on the strength of Moschenko's hat trick, which... You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. He scored in 21 seconds. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it was it was fascinating to read about that. And asked by a reporter to explain how he did it, we Willie shot back. I was so dazed that I hardly realized what had happened. You could say I caught lightning in a beer bottle. <laughs> but uh, wow. Anyway, the the previous record for the fastest three goals had been set by Carl Liscom of the Detroit Red, Red Wings. He accomplished the feat in one minute four seconds in 1938 against the Blackhawks. And that team record for the fastest three goals was. Uh, Oh, excuse me. The team record for the fastest three goals was 24 seconds set by Hooley Smith, Babe Siebert, and Dave Trotter of the Maroons in 1932. That's that's per team team goal. But uh, uh, we Willie Moschenko, 21 seconds for a hat trick. So all you hockey players out there, that's uh, I'd never would have. If you'd have told me over under a minute, I'd have said. Eh, sounds plausible. Maybe under, but I never would that under thirty seconds. I need to correct my previous statement. The largest stadium is Kyle Field uh, at Texas A&M in the SEC. It's one hundred and two thousand seven hundred thirty-three. Neyland Stadium at Tennessee is one hundred and two thousand four fifty-five. 
LSU Tiger Stadium's 102,321. And to round out the top five with Alabama's Brian Denny Stadium at 101,821. Wow. I, I, Michigan's <laughs> not up there. I, I know Michigan. Well, these Delaware, are just in the right? SEC. Oh, I think. Okay. Yeah, I was just talking about Southeastern Conference. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's see. Tell you what. Let's. Uh, you ready to jump to some birthdays here? Michigan's is 107.601. Just for oh, a point okay. of order. Okay, I was thinking that Michigan. I knew Michigan was over a hundred. I didn't know they were up to yeah, hundred. College football's largest venue. But yeah, <laughs> I mean, I remember, and I know I've told this story on Game Day IQ um, before, but when uh, Marlon Fleming sat in my backyard at a cookout, who played, yep. you know, for IU in the late seventies, and told me what it was like running out of the tunnel there when IU played. And I've never seen a group of grown men just shut up and listen like children to another grown man. Oh, yeah. uh, (laughs) Well, you know, we're all in awe of those types of experiences. And Big Marlin was one of the, I mean, he got to live some of those, uh, you know, from with his playing um, status. And uh, one of the few times that when you shake a man, when I've shook a man's hand, his hand just like makes mine look like a child's. I was going to say, yeah, you got a big old catcher's mitt, but uh, Big Marlin, uh, yeah, he was. Uh, I, folks, I graduated from high school and and uh, college with Big Marlin, and uh, that's why I've, I've always called him that. But he uh, he was just a big, big man, and uh, yeah, that that hand was definitely definitely like a catcher's mitt, a big a big old hefty catcher's mitt. But uh, anyway, God rest his soul. He he passed away. Uh, but uh, else, were you going to go with Game Day IQ today? Um, well, speaking of passing away, um, Whitey Ford passed away just uh, on October the eighth. His birth date was October twenty first in nineteen twenty eight. He was in Major League Baseball Hall of Fame in nineteen seventy four. And when he died, it was less than two weeks shy of his 92nd birthday. But I'll tell you, my game day IQ went up when I read about him. I'd been familiar with the name Whitey Ford since I was a kid, but I never knew the following. He played his entire 16-year career with the New York Yankees. He was a 10-time All-Star and a six-time World Series champion. In 1961, he won the Cy Young Award and the World Series MVP Award. Now, here's, here's, here's some stats for you. You know, the storied history of the Yankees. He is the Yankees' leader in career wins with 236, in shutouts with 45, innings pitched, 3,170 and a third, and in games started, 438, and that is tied with Andy Pettit. Ford set numerous World Series pitching records, including consecutive scoreless innings at 33 and two-thirds. Can you imagine pitching 33 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings in the World Series? That's that's three and a half half games. Um, uh, World Series victories, 10. World Series games started, 22. Innings pitched, 146. And strikeouts, 94. Those are some very impressive World Series numbers, and uh, I had no idea that 
Whitey Ford did all those things. But um, anyway, wow. um, let's, let's, we can get back to football. Um, and I, you might have heard a bit, a little bit about this next couple because of our. I, I threw a couple of them out on the uh, uh, Tri-State Red Zone Radio Show we did. But October twenty-third is the birth date. We got three birthdays on that date that are very, very well-known people, and that are each of which would be deserving of an entire show. But the first one, born in 1869, was John Heisman, passed away in 1936. He was a player and coach of American football, baseball, and basketball, as well as a sports writer and actor. Uh, he served as the head coach, football coach at Oberlin College, Buckdale College, which is now the University of Akron, Alabama Polytechnic Institute, better known as Auburn. Did you know that, by the way? You know. Alabama Polytechnic Institute, that's Auburn. Uh, Also, Clemson, Georgia Tech, University of Pennsylvania, Washington and Jefferson College, and Rice University, compiling a career college football record of 186, 70, and 18. On his 1892 team, Heisman's trainer was Clarence Hemingway, the father of author Ernest Hemingway. That's just a little trivia I just thought I'd throw in there. But uh, uh, Heisman was also the head basketball coach at Georgia Tech with a record of 9-14, and 14, um, and he was the head co- baseball coach at Bucktill, Clemson, and Georgia Tech, amassing a college baseball record of 199-108-7. and seven. He was also athletic director at Georgia Tech and Rice. Um, sports writer Fuzzy Woodruff, dubbed Heisman the pioneer of Southern football. He was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame as coach in 1954, and his entry there notes that Heisman, here's a quote, stands only behind Amos Alonzo Stagg, Pop Warner, and Walter Camp as a master innovator of the brand of football of his day. That's the end quote. He was instrumental in several changes to the game, including, get this, Chris, legalizing the forward pass. I didn't know that it was he that did that. The Heisman Trophy, of course, awarded annually to the season's most outstanding college football player, is named after him. Well, Heisman was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame as a coach in 1954, a member of the second class of inductees. He was an innovator and a master strategist. He developed one of the first shifts um, in 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 football, he was a pro- proponent of the legalization of the forward pass, and he had both of his guards pull to lead an end run and had his center snap the ball. Um, you know, the um, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of teams, well, back in those days, pulling one guard was something. Pulling two of them was unheard of. Um, he invented the hidden ball play, and he, he originated the hike shouted by the quarterback to start each play. Um, He led the effort to cut the game from halves to quarters, and he is credited with the idea of listing downs and yardage on the scoreboard and of putting his quarterback at safety on defense. I mean, those are just some things that he he innovated there, and that's uh, when you think about the early days of football, those were some pretty radical things that he did. But he had a fascinating life, and I enjoyed researching him for the show. 
Uh, again, we could do an entire show on him and his contributions to sports as we know them today. But this just scratched the surface, so you could make a, a wise use of your time by researching him a bit. Um, John Heisman, uh, October 3rd, 1869, to, died in 1936. 1936 was the year they awarded the first Heisman Trophy. Actually, they, they renamed the uh, uh, the to- trophy to Heisman Trophy, and uh, Jay Burwanger out of University of Chicago won it that year. But anyway, enough about, about him. Um, but seriously, folks, he was a very interesting man. You, if you wanted to learn something, you might Google him. Here's another one. That, uh, uh, what? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was just saying we've had a good game day IQ so far. I was wanting to know if you had anything else to add. Yeah, got a couple more. Um, you've heard this one because we brought him up a while back. Uh, 1940, also October 23rd, Edson Arantes do Nascimento was born. Widely regarded as the greatest soccer player of all time. Oh, by the way, most people know him as Pele. Do you know where he got his birth name? I've researched him before, but that's, this is the first time I saw this. His first name is Edson, E-D-S-O-N. He was named after Thomas Edison. I guess they left the I out, but that's where he got his first name. How about that? Wow. So, uh, you soccer fans out there, next time you're – you know, doing some soccer trivia and stuff, somebody can say, hey, where'd Pele get his first first name, his birth name? Nobody's going to know that one. So there you go. <laughs> but anyway, in 1999, <laughs> hey, I like I like paying it forward. Somebody's going to win a, win a trivia contest with that yeah. answer. In 1999, Absolutely. Pele was voted World Player of the Century by the International Federation of Football History and Statistics. That same year, Pele was elected athlete of the century by the International Olympic Committee. He's the most successful top division scorer of all times with 541 goals in 560 appearances. Folks, swallow that again. 541 games in 560 appearances. 541 goals, pardon me, in 560 appearances. That's incredible in soccer. Uh, His total of 1,279 goals in 1,363 games, which included friendlies, is a Guinness world record. So, you know, again, that's almost a goal per game. But he's also one of those people whose accomplishments can take up an entire show. Um, But um, here we've got a third birthday. And, Chris, you've heard about this one quite a bit from – October 23rd, 1962. Doug Flutie, a Heisman Trophy winner, by the way. NFL and CFL quarterback. I learned some stuff reading about him, and I've long been a fan because he, he's about my size. Um, college foot, he was in the College Football Hall of Fame and Canadian Sports Hall of Fame in 2007. He had a professional football career in the USFL, NFL, and CFL. Now, get this. While in the CFL in 1991, he passed for a record 6,619 yards. That was, like I said, is a record. He led the Calgary Stampeders to the 1992 Grey Cup. That's their, their Super Bowl, their championship. Then after being traded to the Toronto Argonauts, he led them to Grey Cup victories in 1996 and 97. Okay, again, Canadian Super Bowl, right? He's won three of them. 
He was the MVP in all three Grey Cups, and he was the CFL's most outstanding player, a record six times. So here are two oddities about Flutie's storied career. And Chris, you've, you've heard this one. This will be a yawner, but, but a lot of people have it. On November 23rd, 19, excuse me, 1984, while playing for Boston, Celt- uh, Boston Celtics, yeah, there you go, buddy, while playing for Boston College against the University of Miami, he threw the pass that led the, that game to be known as the Hale Flutie game. Miami was defending national championship and came into the game at 8-3 and three, while Boston College was 7-2. and two. During that game, Bernie Kosar for Miami passed for a school record of 447 yards, while Flutie passed for 472 to become the first major college quarterback to surpass 10,000 yards in a career. Well, Miami led 45-41 with 28 seconds left. Boston College had the ball at its own 20-yard line. Three quick plays gained 32 yards, putting the ball at the Miami 48-yard line. And with six seconds on the clock, Flutie called their 55-flood tip play, in which the receivers run straight routes to the end zone and tip the ball to another receiver. So imagine a crowd of defenders around the ball just trying to make sure it hits the ground without being caught. Because once the ball flies that far, defenders are not going to be covering every receiver. Every defender is going to flood to the ball. So against odds like that, it would appear better to tip it out of the crowd to a receiver less encumbered with that opposition. Makes sense, right? Yeah. Well, okay, back to the play now. Flutie avoided a sack, scrambled to his right, and by the time he threw the ball, he was on his own 37-yard line which meant that the five foot 10 inch quarterback who had already thrown the ball 45 times would have to throw the ball 67 yards to get it to the end zone. Well, apparently the Miami defensive backs didn't believe he could get it that far because they were all in the front of the end zone. And as the ball sailed over the top of them, Gerard Phelan slipped in behind them. And uh, as the ball was coming down, a sliding Phelan cradled the ball and uh, scored the touchdown for the 47-45 to victory. And the odd thing about that is that the play actually was illegal, and a penalty could have been called on the offense, thus ending the game with Miami winning. At that time, in college football, there was a rule that protective mouth guards had to be worn as intended. When Flutie released the pass, there was a familiar horseshoe shape under the top of one of his knee-high socks. It was his mouthpiece. So there you go. I trust listeners enjoyed their trip down memory lane and (laughs) and that that increased their game day IQ a little bit. But here's the other oddity in Flutie's football career. And, Chris, you're well aware of this one as well. On January 1st, 2006, in a meaningless game against the Miami Dolphins, Flutie, uh, playing for the uh, New England Patriots, became the last man in the NFL. Yep, but it became the last man in the NFL to score a point using the drop kick. Yeah, it was on an extra point. That. Yep, it was an extra point. And with Flutie being the third-string quarterback, he was on the field for a two-point conversion. Instead of trying a play, though, the 43-year-old Flutie drop kicked the ball through the uprights for one point. It was his last regular season game. So there's an answer to a trivia question for you and another point on your game day IQ. 
So how about that? I know, Chris, those are reruns for you because we've been folks yeah. we've been around so much, but uh, I still think those are pretty interesting stories. And hey, we had to celebrate his birthday. So uh, I got one more birthday here, October twenty fifth, nineteen fifty four. Mike Arizioni, former hockey player who was the captain of the 1980 U.S. Winter Olympics hockey team, which defeated the Russian team in the famous Miracle on Ice game. Mike Arizioni, so happy birthday to him. And finally, I promised you we'll talk about cheerleading tonight. And no, I'm not, <laughs> you know, not my, not my affinity for cheerleaders, but the origin of cheerleading. It was in no, on November the 2nd, 1898, that a young man named Johnny Campbell, attending the University of Minnesota, he directed, impromptu, he directed a crowd in cheering, rah, 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 uh, ski, you, ma, hoorah, hoorah, varsity, 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 Minnesota. And uh, that made Campbell the very first cheerleader and November 22nd, 1898, was the official birth date of organized cheerleading. Soon after, the University of Minnesota organized a Yell Leader squad of six male students who still use Campbell's original cheer. So uh, there you go. I knew, I knew Minnesota was the, uh, was the first one. I just didn't know the full details on that story. So uh, I happened to see something that came across the old desk, and I said, oh, we can dig into this a little bit more. But uh, anyway, I tell you, that, I told you it was going to be a little bit, little bit shorter uh, uh, this evening, but uh, uh, got some, had some good things. Now, here's something. I'm, we'll finish up with a quote that this is something it could have been said by Chris Cook because how many times are we always talking about you know, act like you've been there before, that kind of a thing. Yeah. Athletes, athletes, I think, embarrass themselves too much about doing things. Absolutely. Here's a very simplistic quote. You should never be proud of doing the right thing. And that is from Dean Smith. Wow. So these, these, these players that, yeah, yeah, these players that get all excited about, you know, look at me, look what I did, look at me. No, you did your job. You did the right thing. That's nothing to jump up and down and brag about. That's, 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 that's expected. Now, if you do something extraordinary, sure, I'm happy for you too. You can be happy for yourself, but you should never be proud of doing the right thing. There you go for, for Dean Smith. <laughs> and, uh, well, hey, I tell he, you, that's a heck of a show. He was reasonably successful. Yeah, he was reasonably yeah. successful, wasn't he? So, Just a tad. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So, well, anyway, I know you've got uh, marital duties to get back to. Uh, uh, yes. That'll be uh, yes, I do. Uh, a never-ending test. Uh, uh, <laughs> but hurts. hey, congratulations! You got you got a good one there, and I appreciate uh, it. You take care of her, and hope she takes care of you. I'm sure she will. And for that, for this evening, I'll turn it back to you and say good night to all good sports. For Alan Buck, I'm Chris Cook. Thanking you for listening to this edition of Game Day IQ at thegruelingtruth.com.
can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed.